This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and Sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're tuned in to Ringgit and Sense, the show all about personal finance, and I'm Sim Wee Boon. Next Wednesday, the 5th of October, is World Financial Planning Day, a, ha- a day held to raise awareness about the importance of financial planning. Now, the past two years of COVID-19 and ongoing economic uncertainty has really brought to light the severity of the lack of awareness of financial literacy among many Malaysians. And while money is still a taboo subject or often a taboo subject for most of us, many are starting to realise that external help is important to help get your money affairs in order. Income the financial planners. Now, long has it been somewhat of a stereotype that financial planners are something for the wealthy, but that perception is slowly changing. In fact, while financial planning is in an early stage in Malaysia, more people are realising the benefits of financial planning. And in fact, maybe nowadays financial planners are finding it less frequent, needing to explain that a financial planner isn't a unit trust or insurance agent. So to help me explore the role and pathways of a financial planner, I have two of them with me today, and they are Rafik Hidayat, Managing Director of Wealth Vantage Advisory and Rosanna Rashid, a director with Alpine Advisory. Good morning and welcome to the show, Rafik and Rosanna. Okay, so let's start off first. Uh, maybe, Rafik, can I get your thoughts? What exactly is a financial planner and how does it differ from, uh, say, a financial advisor? Okay, you're starting off with kind of a difficult question, but I'll try my best to answer. A financial planner is a professional who actually looks at your financial holistically. Uh, it is focused in terms of identifying, uh, helping you to identify what your goals are, where you want to go, how you're going to get there from a holistic point of view. So it's the overarching view of your finances. Whereas uh, a financial advisor, I'm not talking from the regulation point of view, but a financial advisor is generally related to product-related advice means that, okay, if let's say I need uh, protection for my life, so what would be suitable solution for me? Okay, so can you be a financial planner and a financial advisor or can one exist independently without the other or is it normal for both of them to be melded together? Um, Rosanna, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so referring to the term uh, financial planner and uh, financial advisor. Also, just tying back to what Rafi was saying about a financial advisor term, not on a regulatory perspective. Technically, it's it, this is where it can get complicated because a financial advisor now, you know, you may find some from the insurance industry or a unit trust industry calling themselves that a financial advisor. But to look at it in a more double way in terms of a regulatory perspective, a financial advisor is actually one that's being licensed as well. So just to uh, tie in a bit more information, um, so being licensed as a financial planner, you need to have a uh, license from the Securities Commission. Uh, that will entail covering uh, the full range of financial planning, which encompasses uh, insurance planning, estate planning, investment planning, retirement planning. Uh, and you need to go into the role of a financial advisor. There's also a license from granted from the Bank Negara of Malaysia, which allows you to dispense uh, takaful or insurance product. Personally, for most of us, we're calling ourselves financial planner. We we te- actually need to have both to give a whole holistic view uh, in terms of financial planning to encompass all the modules 
such as investment insurance, uh, estate planning, uh, retirement planning, tax planning. Right. Okay. So back to you, Rafik. What then is the pathway like, right? Do you, do you plan to become a financial planner first, a financial advisor first? Taking what Rosanna was saying earlier, so it's also dependent on what do you want to become. So in Malaysia, at least for now, you can at least, you can either choose to be a financial planner or you can be a financial advisor or you can be both. So it's essentially dependent. But anyway, uh, whichever direction that you choose, you need to take your professional certification first. So when we talk about professional certification, we actually have four main ones uh, that is uh, mainly accepted by the regulators uh, for the applications of the license, which is your Certified Financial Planner, CFP, Islamic Financial Planner, uh, IFP. You also have the Registered Financial Planner, RFP, and the Sharia, Registered Financial Planner, uh, Sharia, RFP. So these are the four main ones uh, that is generally accepted by the regulators uh, in order for you to apply for a license. Okay, so you can go to the associations and you can then go to the product providers in terms of, uh, sorry, the education providers, take your uh, module. So it can be either a full module, basically you take one module after another uh, until you complete all the uh, papers. Or if, let's say, you have the necessary requirements, you can then take what's called a challenge status. It means that you only take the final paper. And if you then pass the final paper, you would then uh, receive the certification. And after which, you would need to be attached to a firm. So either a financial planning firm or financial advisory firm that has been set up. Or you can then go the other route, which is setting up your own firm. Because in Malaysia, the practice is that you unpracticed individually. You have to practice through a firm. Okay, so you can't have like one freelance financial planner going around doling advice. You need to establish yourself as a company and operate through the company, whether you do it or you join a another company to do it together and everything, right? Um, but usually there's no age restrictions or anything and basically a person of any background can consider doing something like this, right? So, no. Uh, actually, uh, educational background, there's no specific requirement that you have to have a certain degree. Although having a degree is the starting point to get the certification. Uh, but even then, there are some uh, allowances for people who do not have degrees. They have to take additional papers to prove that they're qualified to pursue the certification. Okay, so even, even like myself, I'm an engineering graduate. So I graduated in mechanical engineering close to 19 years ago. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm a financial planner right now. So it doesn't have any specific uh, education background that you need to have. So I don't have to have an, a, back, a degree in accountancy or finance or business in order to become a financial planner. Right. And Rosanna, what about you? What was your pathway like that led you to being a financial planner today? Ah, okay. So no, I wasn't an engineering graduate like Rafiq, uh, but my majors were actually in economics. And uh, I started off my career actually in corporate banking. So it isn't too far off, but um, it actually, uh, there are a lot of things to learn. Although I was in a similar related finance background, but because it's a it's a personal finance matter. So even then, uh, you know, I had to learn a lot. I, I, I actually did the CFP. Uh, actually, I did the challenge status because I had some experience, a relevant experience that was accepted to the board that included my corporate banking. 
And also I did a stint on, in unit trust <laughs> in my early days of my career. So that allowed me some allowance to do the challenge status. So what that means is for a typical CFP certification, there's four modules, right? So the first one is like the basics of uh, foundations in financial planning and tax planning. Module two is insurance planning and estate planning. Number th- uh, module three is investment planning and retirement planning. So I, I managed to actually go straight to module four, which is the financial plan construction and professional uh, responsibilities. It was not to say it's easy. It was actually, uh, I was sweating buckets. Uh, you know, doing the challenge status, uh, I had to cover module one to module four in like six months. So that was my path. Right after that, I took the IFP challenge status. Before we go to the break for the both of you, um, start with you, Rosanna. Does the career pay well? I mean... Okay, yeah. So about making money. Personally, I have to say it It was a uphill journey, you know, to compare the compensation from someone with, uh, you know, at that time, at least six to seven years of experience in corporate banking, compared to someone that's just jumped in fresh, straight with certification. <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't like, oh, immediately you can see a, a big, uh, you know, like a paycheck, like as you would in like a corporate banking uh, industry, right? So, so of course, initially it was um, challenging because, you know, you kind of have to start from scratch. So, you know, without having any clients or a few clients, of course, your source of income and how much you can charge fees, for example, is only a certain limited amount. So for you, in order to grow and make an amount that is comfortable or for you, I mean, for myself and, you know, for the family, uh, you know, it takes time to grow. Taking It took me easily six to nine months minimum to have a base of clients and of course, you know, uh, some clients actually have some needs in terms of products. So of course, in terms of making money, um, typically, you know, you could it could come in like two forms. One is your consultation fees, which I have to say that is the bulk of my personal uh, income till today, followed by products. I would say, to be honest, to answer your question, does the job pay well? Initially, harshly, Honestly, no, <laughs> because, you know, there's a lot of times that needs to be spent to mark, market yourself, find not just any client, but the right quality client that you want to work with. Because uh, being a financial planner is not an overnight sort of uh, process. It's a quite a long term process, minimum at least a year or two, right, to, to actually enforce, the, I mean, sorry, to build the trust and relationship with the clients and future prospects as well, you know, because you can't just rely on a two or three. You really, to be honest, you need to get you need to get a base of clients and these needs to grow slowly. Okay, we're going to take a short break for some messages. Don't go anywhere. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to Ringgit and Sense. I'm Sim Wee Boon. And today's topic in conjunction with World Financial Planning Day that's happening next Wednesday, 5th of October, um, we're delving into the world of financial planning with Two financial planners, Rafi Kidayat of Wealth Vantage Advisory and Rosanna Rashid of Alpine Advisory. Earlier before the break, we were going through um, a discussion of what exactly does a financial planner do, the, the kind of pathways that you can go into becoming one. Now I want to talk a bit more on the industry, right? I think just to kind of get your thoughts on the role of financial planners in Malaysia now, do we have a lack of financial planners in the industry? If you want to look into whether or not there's enough uh, you know, financial planners 
to serve our country, which has got, I think, 30 over million in total, right? So just looking at data, uh, I believe as of end or last year, the total of licensed financial planners are just crossed 10,000, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Rafiq, you might be able to correct me if I've gone wrong here. Uh, but just taking into account a number of 10,000 licensed planners, uh, compared to the adult population in Malaysia, which is about from 18 to about in the 60s, 22 million. So even we look at a case of 10,000 planners against over 20 million, that would mean there's a ratio of like one, uh, sorry, one licensed financial planner serving about over 2,000 individuals in Malaysia. So technically that's a bit tough lah, if you are looking for a, uh, at a data perspective and ratios. So I personally think it's not enough. Okay, but I don't think all 2,000 of them would want or need a financial planner, right? Rafiq, what's your thoughts on this? So first of all, uh, I need to just highlight on the numbers. Actually, in Malaysia, we don't have 10,000 licensed financial planners yet. We only have slightly north of 1,000. So we have about 1,200 to 1,300 licensed financial planners. So uh, thanks to Zana for sharing some of the figures, etc. So which is also the same figures that we also use in terms of comparison. At this point of time, as a business owner, as a firm owner, there is a lack of financial planners compared to the number of potential clients Okay, but Rafik, but is there demand growing in this industry? Do you see more and more people asking, wanting to engage financial planners? Okay, so basically, I do believe uh, compared to when I started uh, a few years back, uh, the demand the demand has increased. More and more people are realizing what, as you mentioned earlier at the start, what financial planners are. We don't really have to explain to most people that we're not just unit trust agents or insurance or takaful agents anymore. So more and more people are understanding it. And uh, what makes me say that is because you also see non-financial planners are starting to use the term in their own promotions, basically to attract people who are interested to engage their services. So that that is the indicator to me that the demand is there. Because if the demand is not there, why would non-financial planners or people who are not licensed then use the term financial planning as a way to attract clients to them. And Rosanna, what do you find to be the challenges in being a financial planner? Uh, okay, so what I have come across, I mean, the early days uh, at the start, uh, a few years ago, when I became a licensed, pla- lic- licensed financial planner, um, the term financial planning uh, was a bit vague to many because there was kind of like, uh, at that time, a lot of people were associated financial planner to be, you know, just a, um, marketing unit trusts or insurance products. That was my personal experience at the start. So to be honest, I took a while to actually kind of need to go out to people and tell people what exactly I do as a financial planner. So uh, that took time, obviously. Uh, of course, the challenges, of course, is because financial planning, the modules and what you're going to know is so wide. So the learning curve is steep. I was saying earlier about how the first six to nine months was challenging, not just in the term of a marketing perspective to get clients, but it's also the learning curve of uh, understanding products and their various of it and how to apply and also consult the clients with. 
So, you know, that was the main challenge, but it was a good challenge and it's fulfilling. What I want to know now, I guess, um, from the both of you is, um, what does it take to be a financial planner, right? What kind of qualities, knowledge, attitude, approach should a financial planner have, right? Maybe Rafik, you can uh, let me know your thoughts on this and then uh, Rosanna next. I think that that's a very good question uh, because this is something that as I think for both me, uh, Rosanna, as uh, technically directors or owners of our own firm. So these are qualities that we're also looking for in future recruits. To me, uh, we've gone through multiple iterations in terms of finding what are the qualities that we would like in our financial planners. The one that sticks out the most is actually having the right attitude. Okay, having the right attitude. So what do I mean by having the right attitude? So the right attitude in terms of uh, wanting to learn because what you are taught in the certification programs, uh, theory is technical. It doesn't actually train you in terms of how to engage clients, how to do prospecting, how to service your clients. So we do, we've had cases where people who come into WVA, uh, having the certification and everything. And in the end, they weren't able to perform because they had the wrong attitude with regards to wanting to become better. If you have the right attitude, it's just a matter of going through the development program, which uh, each firm I would sure have. As you go through it, then you will become a better financial planner. I have to agree with Rafi. Uh, the attitude must be there. Uh, and I think one of the other things, uh, just to add on, is yes, you actually must be good and like learning every day. <laughs> because in this industry, we have to know so many things. The news, products, you know, political landscape, economic landscape, everywhere. So you you got to be diligent just to stay afloat. I think the other thing that I personally think is really important uh, as a financial planner is you really got to make sure that you are good at problem-solving skills because you got to remember that being a planner, you come with many types of clients with, you know, different situation, different uh, financial situation or profile, and you cannot just give a one-size solution to all your clients. So this is where actually, you know, yes, the technical skills come in, but you really got to have your problem-solving skills. Uh, I think perseverance as well and patience for you to even serve your clients because, you know, it's not an overnight uh, conversation. It is many months or could be years of a journey towards, uh, reach, you know, helping the client reaching their financial goals and needs. Okay, Rosanna, now I want to ask you something different. You mentioned earlier, right, part of the income stream is also helping with the products and everything. So this brings to me a question of maybe conflict of interest or ethics, right? How does a financial planner, how do you balance between giving the best advice as possible, uh, but at the same time, you are also, you have an incentive to promote certain products to your potential client and everything, right? How do you draw the line? Yeah, so personally for me, because when there's any client that comes to me, some for a full, like comprehensive uh, service suite of uh, personal finance, financial planning, uh, you know, I would normally charge uh, consultations fees. So they're normally on a yearly basis, right? So my focus actually is to really deep dive in uh, into, you know, the finances and look into this, if there's any gaps or issues or anything that needs to be rectified. So there are occasions where a, a, a client may need to procure or a product, you know, may it be an investment or estate planning or insurance. So if there is any separate 
fees or charges or commission, so to speak, involved, I need to be straightforward to the client and tell them there's this amount of fees and, you know, uh, it needs to be charged. Uh, then, you know, there has to be consent from the client. So to avoid the conflict, we have to make sure, I personally have to make sure that I need to show the, like the client, the financial plan and where could, uh, if there are any gaps and I need to address those gaps in such a manner that, you know, if it's going to be uh, unfavorable to them in the future, they need to understand why they need it. So it's all spelled out. So that's why it has to be clear on my part that I need to do the diagnosis first. If there's any need for any prescription <laughs> in terms of products, then it needs to be discussed again uh, as part of like an action plan. Okay, Rafiq, what about you? What are your thoughts on this? Okay, so basically, uh, I actually agree with most of the things that uh, Rosanna said. So, but uh, in terms of how we practice, it's actually very simple. So we do understand that it's a potential conflict of interest and it's actually a question that we've received from some of our clients. How do we ensure that there is no conflict of interest when we do both the advice and also the implementation? So first of all, it's actually spelled out in our uh, engagement letter with the client that uh, they, uh, like what Rosanna mentioned, uh, the fees are just to cover the advice and the plan that we give. So any implementation, if any, would be charged separately. And then there's also the right of the client not to proceed with any of the implementation that we propose with us as a financial planning firm. So means that the decision is always on the client side. So we make it clear, we make it clear to the client that they have the right to either uh, implement the product with us or they can take the report and go to their own uh, unit trust agents or insurance or takako agents, estate planning agents, bankers, etc. Is their right. So lastly, then I want to ask you guys, right, in your experience with the many clients that you've dealt with, the many advice and planning and you've, like, you've helped create, uh, what are the major issues that are sticking out? The more, the more, the very common problems that Malaysians have with financial planning, right? Uh, Rosanna, can you start first? Yeah, I think the main few things that are really uh, obvious uh, to me, especially and my colleagues in my firm, is uh, we're actually seeing more people, uh, not just the general public, some of our own clients, uh, falling into many investment schemes that uh, may or may not be legit or even suitable for a client. Uh, this is also worrying when we find, when we do some research into the schemes that the clients come to us for a review, they are actually like uh, on the list of, like security commissions early alerts uh, where they list down uh, individuals or firms or platforms that are actually have causes of concern. Uh, so, so that's, I think, number one for me. We're seeing a lot. Uh, and especially when the investment schemes seem to be too good to be true lah, in terms of their expected returns in a very short given amount of time. So I think that's one. So the, the the education and awareness, you know, is still needed to really um, educate and share to many in the general public about the potential uh, uh, fallbacks or, or, or scams for that matter that's going around, you know, uh, in Malaysia and also globally. Uh, I would say number two, my second thought would be... Uh, there's actually increasing number of bankruptcy. 
amongst very young adults, not, not in their 30s or 40s, but the young 20s. So it really makes me wonder like <laughs> uh, what's going on, you know, in terms of their, their spending habits and do they not uh, like plan for savings or the future. Uh, so, so I would say this view is very worrying. Uh, the, the young adults, the youths getting into financial trouble and bankruptcy. Uh, so I'll say this too, that comes to mind, uh, that there's really lack of financial literacy yeah, in, in Asia. Okay. Rafik, what about you? What are your uh, observations? Yeah, so uh, I, I would like to uh, I would like to concur with what Rosanna has mentioned. And I think the biggest reason is actually the lack of financial literacy. So all, all the others to me are generally symptoms. Uh, symptoms of what happens when we don't have sufficient knowledge or awareness in terms of how to manage our personal finances. Yeah, so get falling to scams or uh, uh, bankruptcy or getting the wrong advice. So all of it actually boils down to, in general, the general public do not have a necessary level of financial literacy, even if I'm not mistaken, a study done by OECD, we're actually one of the uh, countries on the lower side of the study in terms of uh, overall financial literacy uh, in Malaysia. So there obviously there are certain initiatives that have been done. So one one of it is the financial addiction network that was launched a few years ago in terms of combating this and people like uh, financial planners, uh, even even the likes of uh, the regulators, the KPK, continuing doing roadshows, seminars, uh, uh, etc. to improve on this financial literacy. But the it's still not easy to combat decades of misinformation. And nowadays, because of that, so uh, the individual's personal finances are not in order. So they are spending more than what they earn. They are taking loans or financing unnecessarily. They are investing in uh, so-called scams. They are not getting the right advice from other financial intermediaries who are in it looking for sales, things like that. And to combat that right now with the resources that we have, it's not easy. Okay, so that in a nutshell, I would say if we can start turning the tide in terms of getting more and more people to be more financially literate, so all the other symptoms would resolve itself sooner or later. Okay, and with that, that's all the time we have for Ringgit and Sense. I've been speaking to Rafik Hidayat, Managing Director of Wealth Vantage Advisory, and Rosanna Rashid, a director with Alpine Advisory. Join us again next week for more discussions on personal finance. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise. I'm Simwe Boon from The Morning Run, BFM 89.9. Ringgit and Sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.